G'day, Dominic Barfield here and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. There's been a bit of a hiatus since the last rendition, apologies for that. We hope that you like this reincarnation. Now, it's a couple of years since Shailen spoke to Karen Hum, lecturer in emergency critical care here with me at the RBC about lungworm infection in dogs and thought that it was a good time to revisit considering we're still seeing cases of this treatable disease. This was recorded recently. We hope that you enjoy. Thank you for agreeing to speak to me today about, about angiostrongulus. Because your office mate, I probably didn't have that much choice. No, but no. no you didn't have any choice whatsoever. <laughs> but that's, that's, the, that's the way of the world. Um, so recently, like, well, when, when I started my residency, I uh, thought that, uh, which was, was in 2000, 2008, angiostrongulus was, was uh, quite a common referral problem that I think, that I think we saw. And also mm-hmm. there weren't necessarily met- many good methods to, to detect angiostrongulus. As, as as well um, and I, I believe like just in in the referral population that we see which I know is, is skewed um, as regards to what what everyone else sees that the uh, number of cases has decreased o- over time but but I think uh, in the last six months or a year I don't know whether you agree that actually the, I think the case numbers increasing again potentially yeah potentially. so so um, would you mind uh, explaining please um, how androstrongulus phosphorum um, causes a problem in in dogs please um, and then uh, um, maybe I'll ask you a couple of questions about that. <laughs> okay, yeah. so I, I'd just like to say actually as well that I, I would totally concur with you and I think it's really interesting that I started my residency in 2005 and I remember seeing my first case of angiostrongulus and I I didn't know what it was. I'd never even heard of it. I It might have been a line or two in my, my parasitology notes but it was something I just wasn't taught about. Um, and I graduated in 2001 and then you know there's this massive explosion of angiostrongia and I think it caused as you say a large number of referrals because people just didn't even recognize didn't know what it was and I think basically general practitioners are so much more aware of it than they were you know 10 years ago that it's it's become a very you know it's it's amazing how it's changed um, general practice life actually I think it's a differential that just wasn't a say 20 years ago I don't think anyone would have even had it in their head certainly in this part of the country um but anyway you were saying how how does it how does it work well we know angiostrongulus vasorum is a, a parasite that um has um is lives um in snails and slugs and um dogs and other animals can get infected by either eating those slugs or snails or maybe even just they they think as well just even coming into contact licking um the trails of those slugs or snails potentially and that allows the um, parasite to enter the body uh, migrates through the body and gets to the um the heart where it um reproduces and eggs are produced and live larvae then the l1 stage burrow through um those eggs go into the bloodstream get trapped in pulmonary capillaries um the larvae then migrate through into the um, alveoli and pass up the mucosal elevator or coughed up and then swallowed and defecated out and then so the life cycle goes on again slugs and snails come into contact with those dogs or fox feces etc and um, so the life cycle goes on in terms of how it causes disease it causes diseases in two ways um 
it caused can cause diseases either by causing the respiratory pathology because as you can imagine those lungs respond to that um the all the larvae sat in there and you get this verminous pneumonia inflammation um surrounding those larvae in the lungs and so you can see respiratory signs varying degrees but sometimes quite marked respiratory distress and also for more enigmatic reasons um you can see a coagulopathy with them and so the signs due to that coagulopathy can actually be multi-systemic or in various different um various different locations within the body so that can be harder to de- detect as being due to angiostrongulus and i think that's one of the things which can be confusing for people in general practice because it therefore can become maybe a differential in lots of different situations well, i suppose that the way i thought about it if it was something didn't quite fit or if it was weird it was angiostrongulus <laughs> otherwise which is, which is probably the in- incorrect way no i think um, if it's weird it's definitely weird <laughs> I, was, I was just having a look this morning and and uh, and, and you're absolutely right so you too, as, as far as uh, it's not only eating the slugs and mm. snails but also their their path that they've been on or, mm. or even the water source they, i think yeah. there's a paper that show that if they were slugs or snails in in water then that water would be infective and mm. it's kind of uh, got got me thinking about um uh, the dogs at dogs at home drinking water out of water pots that, you yeah. know, that just because they they like it but actually you know at the, at the moment i don't know about you but um trying to trying to grow some stuff in the garden <laughs> slugs and snails are like the bane of my existence so uh, you know that that they are around and actually mm. it's probably a a, a repetitive source where they can get in, infected because yeah as, and as I think I think we find that because owners will often say my dog never eats slugs my dog never eats snails and I think for one they can't say that yeah. but even so now we think well actually that's not the be all and end all I don't think we can say how likely it is they can get infected in that way but it sounds like there is a possibility mm-hmm. and the other other reading I had is that the increase in the in the prevalence of uh uh, of angiostrongus being detected in, in red foxes and, mm. and that increasing from uh, uh, from 7.3 percent in 2005 and now it's, it's 18.3 percent and obviously red foxes are, are kind of urban uh, foxes now and, and mm. that, that probably presents another another um, uh, route that that uh, slugs and snails can can um, and and foxes and dogs in that in that same environment can can self-propagate and it actually still is a problem even though the awareness is a lot better than it was uh, uh, 10 years ago yeah definitely and so I think again like we can we can do all we can in terms of encouraging owners to worm their dogs but even if by some miracle we manage to get all um, owners administering anti um, helminthic you know effective of treatments against angiostrongulus we still wouldn't get rid of it my understanding still at the moment is fenbendazole is is, is one of the the licensed drugs that we could give fenbendazole is not licensed so it's for, licensed for chronosoma vulpis but i don't think it's licensed for angiostrongulus visorum okay. so we always used to use that as a first line because there was nothing licensed then milbamycin became licensed milbamax and so you can use that for treatment and also advocate and Advocate is now licensed for prophylaxis as well. Things have changed, but I think currently Advocate is the only thing which is licensed for prophylaxis. 
Milbimax and Advocate are both licensed for treatment and Fenbendazole, although we know it's effective because you and I, that's what we used to use in the mm. old days before other things are, were licensed, um, that is not actually licensed for it. We just used to use it down the cascade. Fenbendazole is effective. It is a bit more of a faff, slightly more of a faff from the treatment point of view in terms of the number of days you have to get them to eat it and stuff compared to the others. Absolutely. And I suppose it's a good point that the uh, you, we need to make sure that this is an ongoing routine in, mm-hmm. in until medics rather than just a, a one-off if we're, if we're concerned that obviously this needs to be in a, in a protocol and which is why it's probably pretty important to deworm uh, adult dogs quite, yes. quite regularly yeah um even though it pains me to uh, to to say that i know that adult adult animals do have a innate resistance to some of the gi yeah. nematodes but but obviously um the the severe consequences of this disease make it probably pretty important to make sure that that um you know, on top of that, that yeah treatment. and i think i think you've got to tell owners about that and i think probably when i was in general practice and you know, this wasn't a disease that we really used to worry about i used to be a lot more relaxed about giving wormers to older dogs yeah. you know i really did but yeah i think this is something which sort of pushes you a bit more that way and uh, can you remind us about the ways that we can actually diagnose a, a natural in, infection of uh, of lungworm in, in dogs yeah absolutely so um we've got a few different methods um and unfortunately nothing is perfect absolutely nothing is perfect and it used to be in the old days the first thing we we used to use was Behrman um, fecal sedimentation technique so it's probably probably oh, I don't know is it definitely the most effective I couldn't say 100% but that's traditionally used as the gold standard and they take feces you send it away um, to a lab and they will put it in a funnel effectively overnight mix it up put it in a funnel and then um, look for the larvae the next morning uh, and that's pretty effective but we know that angiostrongylus um, larvae aren't always being excreted and the whole time so it definitely can be missed either due to small sample size because they ask for a set number of grams of feces now sometimes we all know you can't get enough feces you may rectal them you may not get enough Um, so you can send a smaller sample but that can be a risk or also that um, they do actually recommend that you do at least three days consecutive day um feces collection so that's a bit more of a faff for owners i must admit i very rarely do that um but that's what they recommend and even then we don't know that that's absolute guarantee of catching it then we used to use um and i still do um as a really quick rough and ready and cheap test is a fecal smear just to look to see if you can see larvae there and sophie and i looked at that sophie adamantus and i looked at the accuracy of that and essentially if you see it it's there but you can easily miss it and also you want to be able to recognize the larvae so it does depend on the experience of the person looking at it whether they've seen it before um increases the likelihood of them being able to detect it it's bedside pretty much and um it costs very very little so i kind of i would do that and if you see live larvae you can't definitively say they're angiostrongylus fasorum but they have to be one of the um parasites that does produce live larvae in the feces which is angiostrongylus um chronosoma vulpis and i feel like there's another one as well but if they've got compatible clinical signs and you've got live larvae in the feces it's pretty much angiostrongylus um and then of course a few years ago we got the angiotect um detect um blood test through from idex which is brilliant and i think has really helped a lot of people because it's um it's quick it's easy you can do it in-house we certainly have seen some cases which have come back positive on bearmans which were negative on the angiotect so if you're really very suspicious um then do 
you know, if you think oh, this really does seem like a, a, a lungworm and the angiotector is negative, don't think that that means it's definitely negative. You know, you do definitely get false negatives with it, but it's pretty accurate. Do they compare um, the angio uh, test from, from IDEX with actual Behrman in the, in the they, papers studying that? Uh, not in any papers I know of. There's some stuff on the IDEX website about it, and the stuff on the IDEX website, basically it caught every everyone, and it wasn't um, positive in anyone's from any other um, helmets, but they showed very good results. As I say, we do know of some that um, have been negative and we've seen it positive on Behrman. But, you know, like I say, no test is 100% positive. Do you, do you, I mean, it's, sorry, specific. Like, like me, probably because, uh, um, you know, sort of not old school, it sounds, it sounds a bit ridiculous, but, but I still do fecal um, smears and, and have a look. Because I think it's just, as you said, it's an easy thing to do. And if it's mm. positive, then... It's then you don't. You don't need to do anything. And especially because you know, it may be if these owners may be people who don't have so much cash. You know, if they haven't been worming their patient, um, their their um, animal, and also we know some of the breeds who are predisposed, like staffies or something. It may be that you know, staffies may not be owned by quite so well-off owners. It may be that they can't afford to do so much investigation. And if it's a, it would be it'd be so tragic. You know, with these animals sometimes can end up being put to sleep because people can't afford to carry on. So if you can try and make things as cheap as possible at the beginning, in the case of okay, right, I've you can see them on there, then you know what you're doing. You don't have to do too much investigation, which is kind of nice. But yeah, again, false neg- you can definitely get, easily get a false negative on a smear. I think the times I find it's I struggle is, is if we have potentially treated the the, uh, the patient, so if we're trying to look for, for dead worms, because I think then that, then it can be difficult. What, harder to recognise them? Yeah, as in if, yeah. They're, if they're moving, I think something's yeah, yeah. quite easy to, to see, but if yeah. they're not, then then uh, then, it, then it's then it's harder. Hmm. Do you, do you do you mind just explaining roughly how you actually um, tweak your microscope to uh, to, yeah, to, sure. to optimise? Well, I'll start from the beginning. Basically, I get a bit of faeces. Yeah. <laughs> um, I usually rectal the animal. We don't wait till they poo. I just rectal them. Put a small amount of, just with a gloved finger, obviously, um, a small amount of faeces on the um, on the slide with a sort of drop of water or saline um, and um, mix it together. And so you got quite a, a thin film of watery feces effectively nice um, and then with the microscope I then tend to drop the condenser drop the um, and lower so it's quite it's much darker like when you're looking at a urine sample um, mm. and I use the times 20 objective usually and just scan around and yeah that with the condenser load it sort of increases the contrast which I think helps a little bit like you say if they're moving it does make it a lot easier but if you're unsure there are plenty of images on google images and stuff that you can look to help you decide I think well people tend to confuse them with a hairs but hairs tend to be straight and if they're dead they still tend to curl which makes it a little bit easier to recognize yeah absolutely absolutely so i suppose uh, lung worm is probably quite a quite a useful disease for, for you because not only it's something that we can have a look at a microscope but also deals with another one of your passions which is transfusions yeah <laughs> so, so you mentioned sophia Adamantos and, and uh, um she was one of the authors in another paper looking at thromboelastography in 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 uh, in lung worm cases that had a bleeding diathesis yeah um and uh, and it, it it seems that there are quite sort of variable uh, um, findings with, with that, mm-hmm. and definitely the the, the tag. So um, for for people that don't know, I suppose a tag is a, a global 
look at the body's ability to to coagulate and, and we found them to be hypercoagulable um, and also decreased uh, fibrigid, fibrigid in, in these uh, cases, increased E-dimers um, and thought to be a, an activation of, of coagulation, maybe also primary hyperfibrinolysis. So I, I think that with, with that in mind, mm-hmm. um, Karen, like what, what if, if you do have an, a dog that has bleeding that you suspect from lungworm, is there any particular therapy that you should involve or, or treat? Well, I guess um, if you've got a coagulopathic one, um, then obviously treat the disease first of all. So I think for me... Um, it depends how I treat them um, in terms of anahomotic wise depends on how their respiratory signs are because if they're really um, affected with respiratory distress then I'll go for an advocate spot on rather than anything else because I don't want to either pill them or you know if they'll eat then fine but if they won't I don't like to pill animals in respiratory distress if they have um, respiratory signs then I might be more inclined as well to give a small dose of steroids so 0.1 mix per kg of dexamethasone I tend to give I don't know what do you use what sort of dose 0.1 yeah Um, mix per kg of dexamethasone to try and decrease because sometimes when these animals have um, a nasty pneumonia then um, when the the larvae die that can actually worsen so um, I tend to give that at the same time. If they don't have no respiratory signs, I don't give any decks. I just do that if they have respiratory signs. I don't know. Is that the same for you? I think I normally give them something anyway. I suppose it's quite difficult to know the, the worm burden of them. Yeah, but, and I mean, uh, there's no there's, then no, there's no evidence, so yeah. it's just you know, it's just what we think, I guess. Um, but yeah, from a coagulopathy point of view, um, if they are bleeding, actively bleeding, then we can check. You, you mentioned tag, and we're lucky we can look at here. We can look at things like platelet function and tag and stuff. But actually, you can people in practice may well be able to get hold of either activated clotting time or prothrombin partial thromboplastin time PT and PTT um, you can look at them and see if they're prolonged if they're prolonged then you might well consider giving plasma therapy even if they're not some people might give it anyway just because it might well help we know that we know that PT and PTT are not prolonged until there's quite a marked decrease in clotting factors so it may be that it might help anyway and although I'm not one for banding plasma about actually although I love transfusion medicine as you know I'm also not I'm not that free with the plasma that might be a situation where I might be more convinced about, about trying it and a dose you know usually we say 10 to 20 mil per kilo of plasma is what we'd aim for and fresh frozen plasma because we don't really know the pathogenesis properly of the coagulopathy with angiostrongylus, I think probably the best bet would be use fresh frozen plasma rather than stored. Um, and then you may need blood products depending on how they've bled and to what level they've bled. So the clinical signs we see may be especially neuroscience so we can see obtundation seizures tetraparesis or um, hemiparesis sometimes or paralysis depending on um, where an animal might have bled say they might not have bled very much for that to occur we can see neuroscience we know with very small bleeds but sometimes they can have really marked bleeds like we can see I've seen hemoabdomens with them before and they become become quite anemic in that situation either whole blood or um, fresh whole blood or um, packed red cells in combination with fresh frozen plasma would be an option so if they're not clinically bleeding mm-hmm. um, but they but they have bled or they oh, i suppose i suppose we should say they probably have quite often have scleral hemorrhages yeah uh, yeah common definitely that. but but do you would you would you hold off just keep them quiet and and uh, and treat them like permitting that their pack cell volume was 
more or less normal yeah, if they're, cur- if they're not currently normal. bleeding then yes I would because I mean the adverse effects we know certainly you can get transfusion reactions from um, blood products um, and so I wouldn't give it unless I felt I felt like it needed it at that point and I think if they weren't bleeding personally I wouldn't I mean and again the evidence based on this is really small or mm. or non-existent probably I mean I don't know if it's worth mentioning um tranexamic acid as well um what, what, what do you what do you think about that so tranexamic acid is uh, meant to uh, um prevent fibrinolysis mm-hmm. do, you, do you think that that would be that there is scope for for that or the, the honest answer is we don't know we really don't know and it's an interesting idea and tranexamic acid i think you know is something that's been shown in human certain human situations to be beneficial and in certain human situations not to be beneficial too which i think is important to remember but there isn't humans don't get infected with angiostrongulus so we don't know there isn't any studies into that um I can I can believe that it might be useful. I can also believe that it may not be useful. Um, and so I think the jury's definitely out. Um, I think if I were in a dire straits situation um, with an animal bleeding out in front of me that wasn't responding to plasma, I might be more tempted to try and use it. But have I ever been in that situation? Probably not. I think the ones that I've really got into trouble with with angiostrongus have been respiratory rather than bleeding, actually. I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah, you know, I, I suppose that the, the as, you, as you mentioned, the dogs that have neurological signs, they, they tend to have a worse outcome, but that's probably related to the actual clinical signs that they mm. have and where, where they've bled. And, and probably those would be maybe ones that I would maybe think about giving tranexamic acid but you, you you raise a very interesting point that uh, in people it has been shown to be beneficial in certain diseases but also actually negative uh, but if we were concerned about ongoing bleeding um maybe it it it, mm. it, it uh it, it won't hurt but it sounds like we desperately need a, a study with this but yeah. but part of the other issue um as as, as well we we know is that unfortunately um there's been no studies looking at angiostrongulus causing um a bleeding diathesis in in dogs um in experimentally because it's something they can't induce experimentally yeah. which is uh, a bit crazy isn't it that, yeah that absolutely so you know it means and if, you know will be dogs plenty of dogs probably wandering around that are infected that are not showing clinical signs and the reasons for that we don't know Mm-hmm. We don't know. Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of evidence that suggests that uh, the angiostrongulus is becoming more of a problem um, within the United Kingdom as, mm-hmm. as, as well as uh, as well as well within Europe. And I imagine there's more papers. I just uh, had a look at the literature saying that there was um, uh, canine ocular angiostrongulosis and granulomatous hepatitis leading to multiple acquired portosystemic shunt in a, in a, in a dog as, as well. And it's, you know, it, it's important that we continue to raise awareness particularly with our um with our with our clients to mm. make sure that, that that this is uh um continues to be to be treated i suppose that you know the best cases of any disease is the ones really we don't see that uh, are, you know particularly if they are if they are preventable yeah definitely and i think you're right they can do the aberrant migration of the larvae so when they don't go straight to the the right ventricle and sit there and they've migrated to other places can cause all sorts of um strange signs and you're right certainly ocular it's been found in csf it's been found all over the place they're um it's a funny funny disease definitely do you think that there might be any uh, resistance to uh, the, any of the drugs that we use in to, to treat angiostrongus i have no idea and i 
dread to dread to, dread to think. I mean, you, you feel like it, it kind of is inevitable at some point, but whether that's happening currently, I don't know. I was going to say as well, you um, you mentioned Europe, but yeah, it has been detected um, in the east coast of the US in one situation as well. I think I think it's got to it's got to be a worry, and luckily we have quite a few drugs that are um, effective against it. But yes, with uh, it's almost with the uh, being used as a prophylaxis, you feel like that's much more likely to induce a resistance at some point. Though I don't think there's a way around that. And do, do you think there's any when when it was reported? I think 2014 uh, um, in the in the vet record about the different breeds associated: uh, Jack Russells, Cocker Spaniels, Spring Spaniels, Cavalier King Charles, and Staffies, um, as well as a, a major cluster in the in the southern part of of England. Is there anything particular about those breeds? Do you think that we we need to look at further, or do you, or do you think those are just the the breeds that that might um, be more interested in things that are running around on the ground. Yeah, we don't know, do we? We really don't. And I think, it, you know, whether there's some, whether their response to it, because as I suppose I keep saying, it's such a strange disease. We don't know how their immune response differs, um, whether they deal with it in a different way. We don't know. I don't think there's a good explanation for that. But certainly it does seem to be certain breeds that we repeatedly do see some people um you know if we're concerned about say other other diseases could cause bleeding such as von willebrand disease mm. and, and that that might uh, appear in um dobermans but also mm. you know labrador shepherds mm. and you know so many other breeds are represented and people might want to actually test for um uh, for von willebrands in these in these breeds prior to committing surgery on them what, what, are, what are your thoughts about uh, lungworm testing prior to any routine surgery i know some practices did start to instigate that and I had heard of that I don't know if people still are I think probably it's cheaper for them just to take um, a worming pill a month before if it's elective surgery you know if that's if that's the approach and then everyone's a winner because then they don't have to have to give it in the first place but people do people do um, have talked about that I've heard that I suppose the only caveat with that is that definitely, you know, if, if we know that there is an in infection, then treatment might control that initial parasite burden, but not eradicate infection. Mm. So, so, you know, they might be effectively carriers um, mm. of, of lungworm, even if we have given them some treatment, which makes it kind of difficult and kind of difficult even with with bearmans even if we take pooled fecal samples over three days to make sure that we're actually getting on top of of this particularly if they can rein, reinfect yes yeah mm. i mean and that's the true with any any uh, antibiotic drug it's not going to be effective for for long long term mm. okay well thank you very much and uh, i would look forward to uh, bugging you and getting you to talk about other things in the future <laughs> thanks tom okay that's it for this time many thanks to karen hum for her time today and many thanks for listening Please feel free to email us a comment on dbarfield at rvc.ac.uk, rate us on iTunes or go to the show notes on the RVC's small animal referral pages. Until next time, take care.